The war in Ukraine is entering its second year, with no end in sight. On top of the continuing suffering on the ground, the war also triggered a shock to the global economy, particularly by limiting supply in energy and food markets. On the other hand, much of Ukrainian wheat is reaching foreign markets. A mild winter has helped Western Europe avoid gas shortages, and Russia's economy has not collapsed under the weight of Western sanctions. As we face the prospect of a protracted conflict, Russia's continued isolation, and the emergence of a multipolar world, what does it mean in the long term for Asia's economies? Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Bilge Arslan. This is the final episode in a five-episode series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. The third episode looked at the risks climate change presents to the economies in Asia and on the business and investment opportunities that arise from climate mitigation and adaptation efforts. The fourth episode focused on the risk of persistent high inflation and global economic slowdown on Asia-Pacific economies, as well as how investors are adjusting their portfolios to high interest rates. In today's episode, we discuss how a protracted war in Ukraine would impact Asia-Pacific economies. The podcast series is supported by Equities First. The opinions of our guests are their own, and editorial control remains with Economist Impact. Two excellent guests are joining us today to share their expertise on the topic. Mahesh Menon is the Head of Strategic Initiatives at Incred Global Wealth Limited, a wealth advisory and asset management firm working for high net worth individuals, family offices, and institutional investors. Previously, he served as Senior Relationship Manager at DBS Bank and Associate Director at Jules Bear. He joins us from Singapore. Welcome to the podcast, Mesh. Thank you for having me here. From Hong Kong, we have John Merritt. John is a Senior Analyst and Asia Manager for Financial Risk at the Economist Intelligence Unit. His specialist research interests include monetary policy and sovereign debt. John, great to have you join us today. Thank you, Bill Gay. Good to be here. Let's begin with the effects of the war. We see that there are two hostile camps emerging and not all countries are willing to take sides. How do you think this balancing act is affecting economic prospects of the Asia-Pacific? What are your views, John? So far, the impact has been rather mild compared to those countries in Europe, uh, closer to Russia or African, uh, Latin America, who are more exposed. Not many of the countries in Asia are directly dependent, either as a trade partner or as an investor. Of course, they are either dependent on energy commodities from Russia in part or dependent on global markets that, of course, will feel some effects of a lower stream of energy commodities coming out of Russia. The biggest challenge for many has been inflation because of higher global commodity prices for food, energy, and also by forcing them to raise interest rates because either their domestic inflation is higher or because they feel they need to keep pace with major Western central banks, uh, especially the U.S. Federal Reserve. 
The impact of this protracted war has been pretty mild across the Asia-Pacific economies. In fact, it has opened up a lot of opportunities across this region. Having said that, most of these Asian countries are dependent on West Asia or Russia for that energy supplies. Even during the war, countries found a way to buy oil from Russia, maybe at a cheaper price or at the market price. So they were able to contain inflation to a large extent, mainly because they had access to different energy products from Russia and West Asia. The effects on these countries have been far minimal compared to what Europe or Africa or the other Western countries had to go through. The supply chain was interrupted and that actually prompted a lot of other countries to look at these Asian countries for more opportunities. You both pointed out that the impact of the war in the region has been mild. It is true that we've avoided a resource crisis so far. Agricultural exports from Ukraine reached their markets and demand for oil and gas from Russia has been lower than expected. On the other hand, how vulnerable Asia-Pacific economies are to such threats if they reappear, and which regions in particular? We have definitely avoided a resource crisis so far. The ships have been sailing from Ukrainian seaports. There has definitely been transactions when it comes to West and Russia in terms of the energy as well. If a full-scale war breaks out, we will not have much energy products reaching our shores. But apart from that, a continued protracted war is actually not going to affect Asia. Having said that, the Central Asia, the areas which are very close to Ukraine and uh, Russia, they are the worst affected among the Asian countries and countries were literally slumping out of the COVID crisis. Then this war happened. It definitely slowed down the recovery. But now, most likely, we are out of those situations, apart from those initial stages where the geopolitical tensions were actually throwing out a lot of panic in the market. And as I said before, countries are taking necessary measures to reach out to the global opportunities and make the maximum out of it. I think the emerging markets as well as Asian economies are coming out of this COVID recovery in a pretty decent pace. Mahesh, you mentioned that the war slowed down the post-COVID recovery of Asia-Pacific. Would you like to add anything, John? If you were to pick out particular markets that are vulnerable, then it would be those more dependent on energy imports, especially oil and gas, Taiwan or, or Japan, Southeast Asia, you might pick out the Philippines and Thailand and increasingly Vietnam as well. But in other areas, such as food security, Asia is fairly robust. If we see a prolongment of Ukraine-Russia conflict, some further obstacles to export Ukrainian wheat, then we might have some serious problems in some of those countries there. The direct effects are limited, but we can't write off the indirect effects. Global inflation has upset economies in Asia, the most of all the possible uh, effects from this um, conflict. Of course, it's going to hit household spending power, so that's going to weigh on your economic growth. It does act as a drain on government spending as well, because governments in Asia tend to act with fiscal measures to try and offset the impact of higher imported prices or inflation in general, and that can constrain their spending later on. I completely agree with what John said, because Asia is predominantly a rice-consuming continent, and wheat is not one of our main food. 
So I don't think there is a food crisis as such. The ripple effect from the greater part of the world, the developed countries, high tight monetary policies and higher interest rates, those effects are actually visible in many markets. Food crisis much largely uh, avoided by most of the Asian countries. Energy always a concern, but then how countries are actually moving more into solar energy. That is a good welcome thought process as well. I think an additional point to add here on the monetary policy front is that so far the central banks in Asia have manage the crisis without really upsetting financial markets or the real economy too much. We're only now just seeing the impact on the real economy of uh, tighter monetary policy, which, of course, can limit investment by both raising the costs of new investment and raising refinancing costs. And central bank and government efforts to mitigate some of that impact after a prolonged period of what were quite low rates, even in markets that were nowhere near the lower bound in terms of interest rates, those efforts to limit that impact can have negative effects on financial stability going forward. Then you would worry about financial position of many private firms who are making use of these government schemes or these central bank initiatives to try and wear themselves through this period of financial volatilities. Let's now shift our focus to the business and investment environment. High levels of economic uncertainty is increasing the risk premiums in developing countries. As a result, investors are shifting towards safe haven markets. What does this mean regarding the medium to long-term prospects of the Asia-Pacific economies? Do you think this attitude is likely to stay? If you look back a few years at 2007, 2008 and 2013, there was a continuous outflow of capital from the emerging markets towards the developed countries because the interest rates were moving up, tapering was starting to take place. Today, the developing countries are the bright spots in terms of investments. India is doing very well. In China, the valuations are completely undervalued. The inflation is at really low. They're coming out of the covid a lot consumption is starting to pick up. So I think there is definitely a risk premium in developing countries than most of the Western world. Once this whole war crisis happened, more opportunities opened up for developing countries in terms of local supply chain. Consumption started picking up and manufacturing started deglobalizing. The manufacturing is being shifted out of China to different countries in Southeast Asia as well as India. Because of that, the growth prospects in these countries are still remaining intact. And that is actually helping private investors as well as portfolio investors to look into these markets and take a decision based on their risk reward portfolio. So I think medium to long term prospects of Asia Pacific economies stay intact. We have to use that word selectively. The monetary policies have been largely supportive of the business segments. We can certainly pick out certain emerging markets that are going to have a rougher time in terms of continuing to attract investor interest. But most of those in Asia are not in that basket, with a few notable exceptions. When we're talking about risk premiums, the interest for me is uh, government bonds, so sovereign debt. And with the sort of medium-term impact on the real economies of these emerging markets, we would expect some increase in the risk premiums associated with uh, 
this government debt, but nothing so substantial, especially when we compare emerging markets in other regions. We see the sort of political instability we have now in some parts of Latin America, or we do see the real problems with both energy and food security in parts of Africa as well. Asia does look fairly positive still. The podcast series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty, is supported by Equities First, a word from our sponsor. Liquidity is one of the proven strategies to manage risks in financial markets in turbulence and uncertainties. Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For close to 20 years, we provide access to capital in 33 equity markets at favorable terms, while our partners retain 100% upside in their assets. For more information, please visit equitiesfirst.com. What is the effect of war on global equity and fixed income markets? What are the financial risks that a possible escalation of the war can cause? More importantly, how can investors protect themselves? Mahesh, let's start with you. I would like to reiterate and stay positive that this war may not have an effect on global equity and fixed income market as much as other situations have arisen in different parts of the world. This war is being contained in that particular region. And as we spoke before, food resources are actually being transited to different parts of the world. There is enough energy supply in the world. And thankfully, in Europe, the mild wind also helped reduce the gas bills. This rising interest rate and inflation caused a bit of falls. The geopolitical tension will always add on to the volatility. Having said that, if the war escalates to a level where the supply chain is completely disrupted and oil prices, the energy prices go up, Asia will definitely be impacted as well. And at that point in time, the risk-reward ratio, I don't think, is going to be in favor of any investor. Our clients are still staying a bit on cash. We have exposure towards gold. We are looking at long-term fixed income. And rather than staying too much in cash, we are also looking at short-term U.S. Treasury. So we are having a blended portfolio at the moment where quality is the first thing which we are talking about. Long-term investment and patience is definitely the most important aspect of this investments. What we're waiting for in Asia is a substantial slump in consumer demand from Western markets. Asia is still, first and foremost, a big exporter to the rest of the world. If consumer demand does slip off substantially in Western markets, say the US and Europe, then that's going to have an impact on private firms in Asia. So far, with China's reopening since the end of last year, and that's been a fairly positive story, but no one's getting too optimistic about that. And with the uncertainty about how long the war in Ukraine will carry on for and will it escalate, I think there is genuine concern about what will happen that could affect final demand in Europe, especially, and perhaps the US. It's weathered a mild winter with the energy stocks that it has, but perhaps we won't be so lucky next year. So if risks to the downside are realized, then we could be in for a bit of a rougher ride in Asia. But there's nothing immediately on our radar that it's going to make us 
panic in terms of reallocating uh, portfolios among Asian markets and among major firms here. Mahesh, would you agree with that? I do. I was just about to ask you a question. Do you actually feel that a protractor war is not likely to affect the global equity and fixed income markets, but a very hypothetical situation of this war escalating to a very nasty level? Is that when we are talking about contagions as well as a market meltdown? So could there be more disruptions to supply chains for major commodities, particularly energy, that could represent an even greater inflationary shock to major developed economies? And that would be countries in Europe. It might also be Japan and parts of East Asia, and to a lesser extent, the US, in which case I would be very worried for these consumer goods companies that are manufacturing out of Asia. And then we would have to have another look at what's going on there in terms of both the private sector and how valuations in these companies are going to hold up, but then also the performance of the economies overall, because for many countries, these companies are the lifeblood of the economy. And if they go for a rough patch, that means the governments also experience a rough patch. That also hits sovereign debt markets potentially. I agree. At the same time, we have been talking about oil as a main commodity in this whole crisis. But we also have to note that China was going through a prolonged COVID period. So the demand for commodities, apart from oil, mainly metals, had been at a very low point for the last couple of years. Now that China is coming out, that is going to be a very interesting development to how the supply chain in terms of commodities other than oil going to pick up in between China and Russia. We are watching to see how that risk can be mitigated and is a supply chain system running smoothly between these countries. Because if you look at India or Southeast Asian countries, the internal consumption is picking up. Even if you look at foreign direct investments in most of these economies, unlike the older days, the local driven investments are actually leading the growth than foreign direct investment. Yes, foreign direct investment definitely plays a big role. But at the same time, most of the governments are putting in lots of efforts to provide a steady growth by helping the infrastructure projects. Escalation has its own risk. But I think for the time being, there is no pressing concern when it comes to Asia-Pacific economies. There is a concern around the capacity of governments to finance the development of their economies. That's a slightly longer term, a medium term risk to economic performance. We have just come out of this pandemic. There's been a lot of government spending that has constrained the space they have for further fiscal support. And then we have a period of heightened inflation, which hasn't been as severe in Asia as other regions. But nonetheless, many governments have stepped in to mitigate that at the expense of their fiscal coffers. So now they're not in a great position to push forward with grand public spending initiatives that are going to increase the productivity of their private sectors. On the one hand, you have a China that is coming out of its zero COVID policy, but it is also on a declining trend still. So it's not going to be the great support that it was, say, 10 years ago or so. The business environment is changing. So what are the risks and challenges this creates for different local economies? What about the business decisions of regional and multinational firms? How does the war affect them? 
one side governments are very careful and the other side the businesses took a step back as the war started because they didn't know which direction the war was going to take place so one thing that came out of this whole situation is deglobalization the whole disruption in the supply chain many other things in the world actually prompted deglobalization manufacturing is being moved out of china to different markets new supply chains are being established the cost of production is actually coming down because companies are moving production from one country to other setting up new factories the business decisions are being made by regional and multinational firms the regional firms are trying hard to attract more business so the evolving business environment actually creating opportunities for local economies every single sovereign fund is looking out for opportunities across the globe a lot of them are looking within asia to start investing into infrastructure projects tech solar green energy so i don't think they are holding themselves back because of this war in fact they are finding this as an opportunity to go out and find greener pastures for a longer period of growth due to covid as well as this war situation the focus on this greener energy pastures are actually going bigger but then you have to find the right market you have to put the money for a longer term and those are the challenges existing in this market there are risk but i think the reward and the premium is actually much higher also if you look at the oil companies that the capex investments have gone up so they are not looking at countries where they can keep exploring the oil they're trying to invest more locally and be energy sufficient so most companies or most businesses are actually making decisions for a longer future What about you John would you agree sanctions risk is not so great in Asia so of course we turn to these indirect effects again a lot of it once again concerns inflation and how it might slow economic growth how it might cut into spending power of consumers and businesses in the region and increase labor costs as well in these markets where labor is such an important factor when you're considering where to locate your manufacturing operations there is obviously that added risk premium of doing business in china because on top of all the us china tensions for which there is now a rising political risk premium we do have those relations between china and russia that are still on a fairly favorable basis and that is antagonizing other major powers in the west so that just adds to the risk premium of doing business in china and businesses are looking to diversify their supply chains china is still really important but trying to also include a number of other countries in their supply chains to lessen this overdependence on china let's now talk about how asia pacific countries are mitigating the effects of the war in the short and long term are there any successful measures that can maintain a healthy economic and financial ecosystem john would you like to go first many countries not just in asia but around the world are trying to increase their stocks of grains and other staple foodstuffs and increasing their energy commodity stocks these are a medium term project so these are ongoing over many years the other thing that countries are obviously doing is trying to combat inflation either through monetary policy tightening or through fiscal measures so things like price caps on essential consumer items or the removal of taxes and fees on various items or services these things to shelter 
consumers from the worst effects of the war? This war actually threw open a big question when it came to energy efficiency of many countries. Most of the Asian countries have always been buying from West Asia, so from the Middle Eastern countries. But that has changed. The countries have started buying oil or gas directly from Russia. And today, China is actually talking about having a pipeline through Inner Mongolia, which is reaching China directly for energy supply. Companies are trying to invest more in exploring energy locally than putting money into where everybody else is putting. That brings down the dependency of countries on energy producing countries a lot. Secondly, I would like to add on is the diversification of resources. Whatever happened with Russia, they are definitely the aggressive party. They were hit with sanctions. Their reserves were mostly in Western world in terms of investments. Everything is frozen. Most of the countries are looking at diversifying their resources, diversifying their reserves, because they do not want to reach a situation where they have to take a side and their reserves are being held by somebody else. Energy security and diversification of resources are the results of this war where most of the countries are putting their maximum efforts. How does the economic dependence of large economies in the region play out in their strategic approach towards the war? China and India comes to mind. India, we can certainly point out that they do have somewhat of an energy dependence on Russia. For China, it's about energy, but other parts of the economy, it's not that dependent on Russia. That's a reason we can point to why the impact from this whole Russia-Ukraine conflict has not been greater in Asia. I think we should look at it more from a geopolitical angle, more than what China is trying to do in the next one to two years. It is, in the medium to long term, trying to establish a better supply of energy commodities than it has now from Russia, so that it is less dependent on imports from other countries and, most importantly of all, less dependent on imports from the West. Would you like to add anything, Maj? As John rightly said, unlike China, India has a huge dependency on Russia. Long term, I'm sure that India and China would definitely want to bring down dependency on any country for that matter. And if you look at India, the indigenous development of defense production is going up. Green energy is going up. So I don't think India also would rely on any Western power for a long period of time to meet the requirements. So is the case of Russia. We've heard some great insights. Can I get some final thoughts for the audience from both of you? We have the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but then we also have the end of COVID in the form of any remaining restrictions on public activity, included within that China's abandonment of zero COVID just a few months ago. The war in Ukraine has contributed to upward pressure on prices, and we've got this global monetary policy tightening cycle now for the first time really in more than 10 years. So this is all very unfamiliar territory. But Many of these trends are creating effects that are leading in the same direction, and that's why we dwelt a lot on inflation today. They're having quite disparate impacts as well. If we look at financial markets now, things that are going on seem to tear up the rule book a little bit. It's very difficult to adjust. I would 
point to the relative stability that Asia has managed to hold so far compared to every other region during these major global trends. Even though Asia has done so well so far, it still faces the risk of a stagnation in demand from Western markets or a further upward push for inflation that destabilizes politics in Asian countries or undermines economic growth or some other uh, deterioration in US-China relations that really sours imports and trade relations between Asia and um, the US and other markets. So even though Asia has done very well, it's not without risks. I really agree with what you said. It's not that Asia has been standing aside from all these risks in a completely different way. We do have the tail risk at any point in time. But even then, a lot of questions are being asked how to mitigate the risk and they are coming out with innovative answers. One of the things which I stressed during this conversation is the supply chain disruption, deglobalization. All these things are actually creating more opportunities in Asia and helping the growth pattern which may survive for a long period of time. The demand from the Western world could pose a serious threat on this consumption as well as manufacturing capabilities. But the production can actually move from China to different parts of Asia. That can help boost the growth of these regions, create more job opportunities, and the governments are willing to take the necessary measures to make sure that the growth remains intact. The risk-reward is worth considering. So we always have to look at the quality of the investments. I don't think there is any concern at this point in time, which is basically prompting the customers and clients to sit on cash. Whoever is actually staying put, looking for long-term investments with enough patience, there is nothing much to worry about. There are enough opportunities. Asia is resilient. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, John and Mahesh, for sharing your views and insights. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.